Hello, Bomb Squad viewer. Welcome to the IMF. You have been chosen due to your close association and loyalty to Bomb Squad Productions. We have been monitoring members Tanner, Richard Kraft, and Austin Zwiebelman for potential ties to the Taliban in North Korea, as we believe they may be culture dealers due to their association with this man. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to monitor this episode of Bomb Squad Movie Night and report back to us with any potential evidence. If Tanner or Austin catches you, we will of course disavow you and act as if we never knew you. This mission will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Agent. Hi, welcome to Bomb Squad Movie Night, episode number 127. I am your host and master of ceremony, Tanner Richard Kraft, and with me I have... Hi, I'm Angle, Dutch Angle. Hi, I am Tim. <laughs> and uh, if you can't tell by Tim reloading his fist, we're talking about the latest Mission Impossible movie, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. That's right. Or part one, Dead Reckoning part one. The seventh movie in the Mission Impossible franchise. If you're coming from our first episode on Mission Impossible, and this is the first one you're watching since then, hi, a lot has changed. Welcome to the future. But before we get into our thoughts on Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which is the seventh movie in the franchise, we got our classic warm-up question, which today I thought it'd be fun if I made it, what's your favorite seventh movie in a franchise? I don't think we're going to talk about a lot of seventh movies, so we might not have a lot of chances to talk about this. So, we'll start with Austin. I got two packages for you from my hometown, you fucking... Okay, considering my limited options, I'm going to go with the most famous episode seven, Paranormal Activity, next of kin. Uh, by that I mean Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens. Uh, there, there was great care taken to make this film very good. It was shot on Kodak film instead of digital, giving it like that larger range in the highlights, halation, uh, subtle stuff that people associate with older classic blockbusters. The camera's very dynamic, constantly moving, which is kind of an improvement from the stiffness of the prequels. You know, uh, back when set extensions were a little bit harder to move the camera around, uh, because sometimes they were actual paintings, or 3D tracking tech just wasn't that advanced yet. Not to mention the tremendous advancements in generating photoreal CGI over the 10-year gap between films, really helping the texturing guys give the digital environments that famous Star Wars lived-in feel. And the surprise amount of practical work, like a life-size Millennium Falcon or the incredible BB-8 puppet, and you just have a great-looking movie. Everything else I could possibly say describing why The Force Awakens worked is boilerplate shit that everyone's heard 10,000 times. So I'm gonna end on a famous clip from the group that basically started YouTube Star Wars discourse. ATSTs, ATST. Great answer, Austin. Totally didn't just fucking steal my answer. Tim, moving on to you. Yeah, uh, everybody who knows me knows that I am a huge fan of the masterpiece film Dragon Ball Z Super Android 13. <laughs> uh, when, it, when Android 13 tells Trunks not to lecture him with his $30 haircut, I felt that. Is that what you've done with your free will, boy? Don't you lecture me with your $30 haircut. Goku dies. Uh, no, my real answer, though, is a hit film that resurrected a classic franchise that started in the 70s brought God back our it. beloved favorite characters no and introduced way. some new characters that you we You are not taking up. my second choice. I am, of course, <laughs> talking about 
Jason Siegel's The Muppets. Oh, thank oh. God. Oh. <laughs> Jason Siegel spent five years working on this movie. Uh, it's such a fun movie. It has so many great bits. Jack Black tied to a chair. That's just fucking funny. It's one of those sort of nostalgia trip type movies, but it feels very, like, earned. Like, uh, it's The Muppets. Uh, everybody knows The Muppets. Everybody loves The Muppets. It's just a very good exercise in using the Muppets in film. Uh, I didn't watch the follow-up. It didn't look good. But uh, Jason Siegel's movie, quite good. Uh, go watch it. Back to you. Am I a man? Or am I a Muppet? Woo! All right, Tim, I'm sorry for interrupting you in the middle of your spiel, but the way you were setting yourself up, I genuinely thought you were about to steal my answer after Austin already stole my first answer. We all started at Force Awakens. It's the obvious one. So, when I looked at a Wikipedia article uh, called Movies That Have At Least Seven Entries, I realized that there are three movies in particular that were seven entries in the franchise that I deeply love. They all, funnily enough, came out in 2015. What? One of them is Furious 7. Okay. A movie I really, really like, but don't quite like as much as the other two on this list. The second of which is The Force Awakens, which was going to be my answer until Austin took it. So I'm pivoting to my second choice that I briefly thought Tim was taking, which is, of course... A franchise that started in the 70s, brought back a bunch of classic old faces we love while revitalizing the franchise and entrusting it with new hands. I am, of course, talking about the Ryan Coogler-directed Michael B. Jordan starring Creed, which is the seventh movie in the Rocky franchise. It's a great revitalization of the franchise. It's one of the best requels they've ever done. It arguably did the requel thing a month before The Force Awakens did it and popularized it because Creed came out in November, Force Awakens came out in December. You're right. Sylvester Stallone probably came second in Best Supporting Actor votes that year. Sylvester Stallone's great in it. Michael B. Jordan's great in it. Even though the newest Creed movie, Creed 3, is probably my favorite of the Creed movies, mm-hmm. Creed 1 is still an amazingly great movie that adds a lot of lore to the Rocky franchises and I think takes it back to its underdog roots after, like, by movie 3, the Rocky franchise sort of fell off the rails a little bit in a good way. I fucking love Rocky 4. And then Rocky 6, a.k.a. Rocky Balboa, kind of brought us back and then Creed really brought us back. So that's going to be my answer for the favorite seventh franchise movie. But that's not the seventh franchise movie we're talking about today. We're talking about the seventh movie in the Mission Impossible franchise, Dead Reckoning Part 1. A movie that is apparently underperforming at the box office and is uh, losing to, let me check my notes here, conservative propaganda. So that's really cool. Uh, Damn it! Um, Sound of Freedom. It's doing really well, apparently. I haven't seen it. I thought the trailer looked bad. Uh, and now we're going to get a bunch of hate comments like we did in RRR. The conservatives are buying out all the tickets. That's the only reason it's doing well. That is true. I actually saw the theater I work part-time at at one of those. Wow, so only our theater has fucked up sound? Movie theaters are held together with duct tape. Shut up. Um, but anyway, <laughs> we're going to talk about Dead Reckoning. What are our overall thoughts on the newest Mission Impossible movie? Tim, we're going to start with you. So, the Mission Impossible franchise is actually sort of a blind spot for me for a while. I hadn't watched the first one until you guys did your episode on it, and I figured, it's about time I watched this one. I've seen a Brian De Palma movie once or twice before. He's, he's a good filmmaker. I liked the Carrie movie, and I quite liked the first Mission Impossible. It was, it was a very good, like, classic thriller. 
You have bribed, cajoled, and killed, and you have done it using loyalties on the inside. You want to shake hands with the devil that's fine with me. I just want to make sure that you do it in hell. And then the sequels I just watched recently because my girlfriend moved in with me earlier this year and she brought her Blu-ray set of the first six movies. And so we watched through all of those a couple weeks ago and uh, had a good time finally getting to those. Mission accomplished! I'd especially been meaning to watch Ghost Protocol because it's the only Brad Bird movie I haven't watched. But anyways, when I got to this one, we saw it in IMAX right before it got like pushed out of IMAX. I saw it in the ideal settings and uh, it was a blast. It was a very good time. This is definitely my favorite sequel. I might still like the first one more just because like it's it's an undeniable classic film. But this was a very fun sequel. The action set pieces were off the charts. Awesome. Like the whole movie is just setting up that thing that you saw in the trailer and you're waiting for, which is the jump. And when you finally get to that, and it's just cutting back and forth between him on the motorcycle and the stuff on the train, and then he finally gets to that hill, and he's just like, ah, god damn it. Like, that's just <laughs> such a funny, like, payoff to that whole setup, and then, of course, the stunt's great. All the stunts were great, all the action set pieces were great. I must have made a wrong turn somewhere. No, no, that's it, that's it. What? How can this be it? We had a thunderstorm right in the middle of the Rome chase, so there was a power outage like right in the middle of that, and we had to like bring it back. So that was a little annoying, but like the Rome set piece was very fun. A lot of good stuff. Probably have more coherent thoughts in general discussion. Back to you, Tanner. Excellent, excellent, excellent. I do got to say, what you're talking about, how it's such a good comedic payoff of him in the end being like, oh, God damn it. Uh, the second funniest part of that is, if memory serves me correctly, what makes him commit to actually doing the jump is he basically goes, think about the baddies. And then go. he goes for it. Like, he has like a flashback montage of every hot woman in his life in this movie, I'm pretty sure. And that's when he goes for it. And I'm like, I get it. That's fair. I don't know if I can make it across the valley and intercept and safely on a moving train. Do you copy? Yes! Austin, I'm excited to hear your thoughts because I actually know nothing about what you thought of this movie. Uh, I don't even know if you've actually seen it and you're not, you could just be lying to me. I don't know. Uh, speaking of baddies, I saw a Twitter user call this latest movie the Hot Girl Olympics and I thought that was sort of fitting. Uh, lots of great women in this movie. So I saw this at IMAX opening weekend and to be completely truthful, I think that they're hiding an expanded aspect ratio version of this film in a fucking vault somewhere. I think that after Universal scored that three-week exclusive deal where Oppenheimer would get all the IMAX showings, they took the shorter 239 scope version of this film and said, now nobody gets to see it in actual IMAX. Fuck you people. Uh, which is a shame because it could have used the added boost. One thing that came to my mind is how this film does a couple of things that Fast X did, but better. Is that the killing he enjoys? Ah! suffering. Never. Except death when suffering is owed. Uh, both of those movies feature a villain trying to kill the hero by blowing up a huge structure near the end. And Mission immediately wins that battle because as cool as Dom facing down an exploding dam might be, the Mission people launched a real train into a real pit and then used the aftermath to create one of this movie's most incredible action set pieces. 
Both of these films are also part one of two cliffhanger movies, and Mission doesn't so much win that contest because its ending is super great. Dead Reckoning has a serviceable ending, but more so Mission wins because of how bafflingly shitty the ending of Fast X was. I object to that. Fast X doesn't have an ending. That is its problem. Semantics. Overruled. The last thing I noticed uh, that they have in common is their meta-commentary mocking franchise tropes. In Fast X, there's this really hilarious scene where Alan Richson makes some cracks to Brie Larson about how Dom Toretto is like the Borg from Star Trek. The way that he eventually turns everyone into family and just goes around causing endless destruction. That's their M.O to corrupt law enforcement. Everyone becomes family. It's like a cult with cars. In Dead Reckoning, there's a few choice jokes about Ethan Hunt and the IMF, my favorite of which coming from Shea Wingham. His character is trying to explain Ethan Hunt to his operatives and calls Ethan a mind-reading, shape-shifting incarnation of chaos. I think both films land their self-referential bits, but Mission wins out just because of that dynamite scene where Princess Brides learns about the IMF for the first time, shortly before Ethan comes in and gasses everybody with the green smoke. What exactly is it I'm not supposed to know about? The IMF, Mr. Kittredge. The World Bank. No, that's the International Monetary Fund. Mr. Kittredge. I mean the other IMF. Another significantly more weird comparison I'm here to make is how this film reminds me of Johnny English 3. You see, I think some older people who grew up using analog instruments have this specific wish fulfillment fantasy about digital technology becoming corrupted somehow and having to revert to the old school ways. Johnny English 3 has several story beats about how absurd digital technology has become, and it ends with Johnny English using his analog-era wits to put on old-school knight armor and physically throw an iPad at a villain as if it were a rock. Uh, with Dead Reckoning, I don't think that this impulse to cripple digital instruments comes from a place of crankiness so much. It's just a natural response to, like, spy movies having increasingly more convenient sci-fi gadgets and wanting to remind audiences how we got along before everything had a little computer inside. And I will admit their grander commentary on information technology is genuinely interesting. How's that possible? The AI was destroyed. And now that I've used up most of my time to make stupid comparisons, I'm going to briefly summarize how I actually feel about the movie we're discussing. To be frank, it's my least favorite Mission Impossible since the original trilogy. And while that still makes it the second best action movie of the year behind John Wick 4. It is strange watching this franchise miss the mark a little bit after its legendary three-movie hot streak. Like Joni Mitchell said, you don't know what you got till it's gone, and I found myself badly missing the pacing of, like, self-contained stories and action-oriented filmmaking with a little less emphasis on character drama. Still, even if it didn't meet my sky-high expectations set by the previous three films, it's still a huge blockbuster event that contains many novel things that only the Mission Impossible team are talented enough to bring to the screen. Perhaps when part two comes out, we'll see the bigger picture, and the payoffs will make it worthwhile while. For now, it's more like Dune Part 1 than Across the Spider-Verse. Similar to the loss of, like, 24-hour grocery stores in my area, I'm gonna blame this one on COVID. Back to you, Tanner.
I actually kind of agree with you, especially on the weakest since the original trilogy. I think I might like it more than Rogue Nation. I'm not sure, but I actually have a big theory as to why. I'll get into that later. Uh, first things first, uh, guys, I'm going to be doing a new thing here. I'm actually going to be having bullet pointed notes to try and guide my uh, thoughts on these episodes so the audience won't be bored out of their minds. I um, mean, my first note here is a single bullet point that just said uh, Ving Rames is the coolest man alive. This is true. Yeah. Can we all agree on this? He's got the meats. He's got the meats. <laughs> Motherfucker. The train sequence at the end made me write down Tom Cruise, Nathan Drake, because it heavily reminded me of the sequence in Uncharted 2 where you're climbing through the train that's mm -hmm. falling off. Women in this franchise are cool. Haley Atwell is an excellent addition. Uh, Vanessa Kirby might be the hottest woman alive. And uh, Rebecca Ferguson has an eye patch, and that's cool. And Haley Atwell specifically does this thing, which is really intriguing for me personally. This was the first Mission Impossible movie where I actually asked myself during some scenes, where's Tom? Because usually it's the Tom show all the time, but Haley Atwell has a fair amount of screen time to herself, I feel like. I'm gonna get into a bit of my negativity here, which is that, uh, for me, I think its biggest problem is two things. One, this is a two-hour and 43-minute movie that is just a part one. It's very long, and I think it suffers from some slight pacing problems, a bit of dead air here and there. Spoiler alert, Rebecca Ferguson's death scene, what the fuck was that? She got stabbed! actively bad, I think. So bad, in fact, that I think they're faking her death out again, again, which would be kind of annoying, but whatever. And the third thing, and this, I think, is the thing that hurts the movie its most. This movie's big set piece stunt thing, whatever, is that jump, right? Yeah. Compared to the last three movies, which are climbing the Burj Khalifa, hanging onto the side of an airplane as it's taking off. Yes. And the halo jump sequence. Riding a motorcycle off a cliff is a cool stunt, don't get me wrong. It kind of pales in comparison. Like, you see it in the trailers the whole time and you think, oh, that's not the signature set piece of the movie. Except it kind of is. Yeah. And it's not a very good signature set piece. This movie is missing a signature set piece moment like the other six movies in the franchise have. Not just the recent ones. Halo Jump, the Burj Khalifa, hanging off the side of the airplane. The first movie has the iconic sweating, trying not to hit the lasers moment. The second one has that thing where the knife, an actual knife, is like inches from going into Tom Cruise's eye. And uh, my least favorite one, the third one, I don't know. I don't remember most things from Mission Impossible 3. It gets blown up into a car briefly. Yeah, that one might be worse than this one. And I think it's lacking that signature oomph that the franchise is known for. And I think that's why it doesn't quite hit as hard. I also think there's like a lack of really good hand-to-hand -hand combat scenes in this movie for some reason. None of them impress me as much as the, granted, the one in Fallout in the bathroom is probably the best in the franchise. But there's nothing like that. Henry Cavill doesn't reload his fists. They tried with the alleyway fight and it also landed kind of flat for me. Oh, I forgot to say this earlier when talking about women. Mantis from Guardians, great addition. Now, let's go into a positive, and I think the biggest strength this movie has is this might be the funniest the franchise has ever been. Yeah. The humor is there in spades. My favorite running bit is Shay Wiggum just, like, going up to everyone and being, like, just grabbing their faces. Yeah. And stretching it out. I can't believe it took seven movies for them to come up with that bit, but they finally did, and I'm proud of them. Um, speaking of Shay Wiggum, I'm really glad he's playing a good-natured cop but a tough cop, you know? Good for him really stretching it out like that. It's been at least three weeks since he played a character like that, so I'm really <laughs> happy for him. And my final note here, and I don't think I'm gonna go anything off of this, I just wanna read the note word for word, which is, Cruz has got so much juice. Yeah, when he stops Haley Atwell in the airport for the first time, for three seconds I was like, no way he's pulling it off, and then he somehow managed. He's got the mojo. Yeah, he's got the juice for days. 
Now, a lot of people keep talking about this movie like it's an anti-Hollywood AI movie. I think that's more of a coincidence of timing, kind of like how Glass Onion was. But I also think this movie is about something else. And I'll get into that in general discussion. We're going to open general discussion up to that because I want to hear what you guys think about it. But we'll get to that after a brief commercial break. Bye. Welcome back from ad break. Do you like colors in your movies that are stripped up on a palette to make an art piece? In that case, go to so you can add a mission impossible art piece to but before you hit checkout, you got to enter the code SQUAD15 to save 15% or more on your order. Do it now! Do it now! MoviePilot.com, SQUAD15, go there. Austin, I believe you have something to say? Yeah, it's a scary time in the film industry right now because a lot of workers are striking and the big business guys are greedy assholes hoarding all the money. And so if you want to help the striking people get better working conditions, better pay, all that good stuff, you can donate to some of these funds to help out. For instance, the Entertainment Community Fund, the Snack List, Groceries for Writers. You can find links to that shit in the description below. Now, back to the show. Let's get right into general discussion where I'm here to tell you guys my pitch. Everyone talks about how it's an anti-Hollywood AI movie. I think that's an accident. I don't think that's the point. I actually do think this movie's about something in a metaphor, and I'll explain what I think it is. I think this movie is about Tom Cruise trying to kill God. Huh? Hear me out. What's the key shaped like? A, a key. It's shaped like a cross, not a normal key. Number oh. one. Number two, the villain's name, literally Gabriel. Come on. Number three, the entity, all-powerful entity, just call it God. That's all the evidence I have for this theory. Uh, what do you guys think of this? Tom Cruise seems like the kind of guy that would try to kill God. <laughs> I think that's part of his religion. Holy shit. Do it for Xenu. I guess so. I'm sorry. It's just so grandiose. I didn't know I was walking onto an Evangelion podcast. I mean, congratulations on, like, intellectually gobsmacking me. It's very interesting. I just can't improv, like, a thought on this because it's fucking huge. It's an interesting lens to watch it through. Uh, so that's number one. The second thing I want to bring up in general discussion is that this movie actually represents a first for the Mission Impossible franchise. Does anyone know what? A woman survives. No. This movie is the first Mission Impossible movie to be shot on digital cameras instead of film cameras. I think they use the Sony Venice because it has the Rialto feature where you can take like the camera body 18 feet away from the sensor block. Yeah, I've heard about that, which is nuts. That's partially how they were able to film the alleyway fight, which, by the way, was too shaky. I do not understand why they wouldn't just film it in a fake alleyway where they can take out walls as they need to. Why actually put yourself through that? It's just an alleyway. Because he's Tom motherfucking Cruise. Yeah. I'm not one of those film is inherently better types. However, I do think this is one of the more muddy looking movies in the franchise. <laughs> Would film have helped? I don't know. So this movie basically was kind of like ad-libbed as they went along. You read any interview with Chris McQuarrie and you'll quickly learn that this movie's plot was basically improvised. They have to deal with like serious production shakeups like airports changing on them at the last minute, Poland not wanting them to blow up a historic bridge. 
it makes sense that they'd let the story be more adaptive under these types of conditions, right? But the funniest example of shit changing as it went along was Nicholas Holt. Fucking Renfield briefly was hired as the main villain of this film. What? The shadowy puppeteer behind Isai Morales, known as the Phantom. Apparently, there's a shot in the movie where you can still see him, according to McHugh. But imagine this exact same movie, but Renfield is the bad guy behind the bad guy. Worse. So that probably added to the runaway costs beyond just COVID. Cutting out a villain that was a major actor, like partway through filming, that's kind of nuts. I almost feel bad for this film, like it's my friend. Even though I know Tom Cruise is like a gajillionaire and this is a big studio production between Skydance and Paramount, like hearing about how many times this movie got fucked by COVID, like production cost wise, there is a reason the budget is that big and it's not because it all shows up on screen. They got owned by COVID and it yeah. makes me sad because I love the Mission movies. This movie has like double the budget of Fallout, which I think was the most expensive movie in the franchise up until now. And it doesn't show on screen, but it's all because, you know, Tom was like, we need to prove, enter that clip of him just berating a crew member. We are creating thousands of jobs. Uh, which is the most relatable thing I've seen out of Tom Cruise in the last 10 years, mind you. They needed to be the proof that the rest of the world could do it. It's just kind of funny how many COVID movies that were shot after this one that came out first. Fast X being a great example. I also, I want to, speaking of money, I want to briefly talk about the part one, part two thing. Just like money. So this movie became a part one and part two because according to Chris McQuarrie, the concepts just got too big for him to make it all in one movie. But the idea, right, uh, because we're seeing this a lot now, uh, the idea must be that the payout's good for a part one, but fucking out the wazoo for a part two. Does the data support this, right? Like Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows part two made 1.34 billion. That's 400 million than, than part one. That's a great example. Breaking Dawn part two, right? Made 848 million, 100 million more than part one. But then we've got stuff like Mockingjay part two, The Hunger Games. It made 653 million, which is 100 million less than the first one did. And then we have It chapter two, which grossed 473 million, which is $300 million less than It Chapter 1 made. So it's actually kind of a dodgy place to put your movie, this like part one, part two thing. And we won't have better, more recent data until Dune Part 2 comes out, which is hopefully this year, but maybe not. Might be delayed. We'll see. God <laughs> damn it. Um, I think it depends on whether or not you actually call it a part one or not. I think in recent years, there's a reason studios have been moving away from that. I think that's a big reason why Across the Spider-Verse, part one and part two became Across and then Beyond the Spider-Verse. I think there's a reason why they were kind of hiding that Fast X was a part one in a lot of the marketing. That part one, people are going like, oh, well, I don't care. I'll show up for part two. I'll catch part one on streaming. It creates a lack of urgency to go see the movie. It's ultimately a poor decision. There's a big reason why Infinity War went from being Infinity War Part 1 and Infinity War Part 2 to Avengers Infinity War, Avengers Endgame. Great yeah. reason, considering Avengers Infinity War is a $2 billion movie, and Endgame somehow managed to make six or $700 million more dollars. Right. The biggest. Big reason. Making it a part one, I think. I think that's a big reason why it's... There are three reasons why it's flopping. One, released too close to Barbie and Oppenheimer. They should have released it in August. Number Ouch. two, Sound of Freedom accidentally becoming this weird cultural phenomenon. Even with the donating a ticket thing, that's existed for a long time. This one is specifically catching on for some reason. Because it's such an important movie. And uh, number three, I think... 
the part one. Those are the three big reasons why it's not doing as well financially as it could have hoped to. Now, it's going to have a guaranteed 90-day run in theaters. It's going to be in theaters until October because apparently that was something Tom Cruise got out of the studio while he was forcing them to not release Maverick on streaming. Tom Cruise is a god, is what I'm saying, apparently, which is why he wants to kill God. (laughs) And we're back. There could be only one. He wants to replace him. There's an Odessa Steps reference in this movie uh, during the Rome chase. When Tom Cruise and Haley Atwell are careening down the stairs in the Fiat, there's a brief threat of hitting a baby in a carriage. Uh, this is a riff on the old Battleship yeah. Potemkin bit, and uh, some people might know it from that movie, The Untouchables. I picked up on that. I, I thought that was an Untouchables thing. Can we talk about how Tom Cruise is older now than John Voight was in the first movie? What?! Don't like that. John Voight was 57. Tom Cruise was 57 when filming started on this movie, 59 when it wrapped, 61 when it came out. Tom Cruise's plastic surgeon could put a man on the moon. His plastic surgeon's name? Xenu. Oh, man. Benji is the bravest character in this movie because he Mm -hmm. activates autopilot on a car while a rogue AI is destroying the world. Speaking of Benji's character, that reminds me of the biggest piece of accidentally perfect political timing this movie has, which is the sequence where the AI clones Benji's voice. Because that's a big thing we're all worried about right now. I love that the AI was only able to do that because of the fake bomb. Speech synthesis. Oh, I didn't put two and two together that it used him talking to the fake bomb as the data set for synthesizing his voice. That rocks! That's probably why it was a dud, because the AI needed the data to be fully transmitted. I am fucking blown away right now. Yeah, this movie's got layers. This movie's also got sleight of hand tricks. Who likes that? Who likes sleight of hand magic? I I bet magicians love this movie. It's making them look good after the Now You See Me franchise made them look bad. Insert that Now You See Me 2 part where they're like throwing the cart around the room (laughs) and it like looks like shit because it's half CGI. There was a moment uh, with Henry Cerny that just blew me away. Like it was pretty good screenwriting. Uh, There's one point where Kittredge tells Ethan, the next war isn't going to be a cold war. It's going to be a shooting one over a shrinking ecosystem. The last of our dwindling energy, drinkable water, breathable air. When that moment happened, I was like, fuck yeah. That that shit, Mm -hmm. he delivered the hell out of that line. Crazy. When that part happened, I started crying. Yeah. We're going to die. Is this real? So Tanner brought up earlier the running up the train thing, which reminded him of Uncharted, and I definitely get that. What was funny for me, though, was like when I was watching the sequels and I got to number six, I thought to myself, hmm, the director of Pathan must have really liked this movie. And so then when I was watching seven and I got to them running up the train, I'm like, they're doing a Pathan! Yeah! Let's associate it with Pathan instead. So so the weak numbers on the Pathan cast can go up. There we go. Uncharted doesn't exists. There's only Pathan cast. Uncharted Pathan crossover when? Right after the G.I. Joe's Transformers crossover. <laughs> All right, I can't get over it. Okay, hold on. This is going to be only a chance to talk about this now. When that happened in the theater, when they kept talking about being like, oh, we have the secret agency, I thought it was going to be Sector 7 from the Michael Bay Transformers movies. And then the motherfucker turns over the business card and it says G.I. Joe. And I literally out loud went, What? Oh, yeah, there were definitely people in my theater that out loud said what. If it wasn't for the fact there were kids around, I would have said what the fuck. What's really crazy is that Kittredge in this movie, the same thing happens to me. He turns over Haley Atwell's business card and it says G.I. Joe. What the fuck is going on? (laughs) G.I. Joe is everywhere. I don't 
know if this is the right opinion to have, but I think that Tom Cruise has earned our attention. Because I saw something get brought up about how Tom Cruise is just an evil bastard. Because he's the face of, like, a fucking evil cult and all of this stuff. But I think that, like, almost killing yourself for movies over and over again is actually good enough penance for the level of evil stuff he's done. In my mm. eyes, he's forgiven enough that I'll go watch him in movies. Because just, it's so, like, Greek tragedy weird. Just, I'm gonna keep doing shit that almost kills me for all the movies. Let's go. Please love me. It's a very weird shtick, like a weird dynamic. His entire career is a flex, and uh, we're here for it. He's our last movie star. Hey, did anyone else have an epileptic seizure during the opening credits? <laughs> uh, no, but you know what? That reminds me of my favorite bit of the Mission Impossible open credits, how they spoil the rest of the movie. Always love that. I thought that it was kind of lame that they used pixel sorting as their, like, main gimmick during the opening sequence, because that's, like, a thing that babies do on YouTube when they're making cheap music videos. I was like, I know what that is, and it's not impressive. Do, do better. I well, what little did you know, actually, is that Tom Cruise moved each pixel by hand. These were all laid out physically, like mosaic tile, and he yeah. pixel sorted himself using a slide rule. God damn it. None of that opening credits are digital. Even the footage from the movie, he actually shot that on film. Like, he put it on a camera and then shot the thing on film. Every time I saw Isai Morales in this movie, I had the unmistakable thought, I've seen this guy's penis. I don't know where, but that just kept popping into my mind. I was like, where have I seen this guy's balls? And little did you know, it was from the movie Him. Can we talk about how Gabriel, the villain of the movie, looks like a dilf-up version of Christopher McQuarrie? Does he? A lot of people are talking about this, that he looks like a hotter version of McQuarrie. He is an imposing motherfucker. I think he's one of the two recent people to voice Deathstroke. And Tim, I, I know he's your favorite Deathstroke, Isai Morales. Yeah, there you go. Trivia Corner. Are you guys ready? Uh, Tom Cruise and Ving Rhames, only two actors to appear in every movie of the franchise, so that's cool, uh, especially because Ving Rhames isn't credited in the fourth movie, but he is in it for a single 30-second scene, and from what I understand, he made $7.7 .7 million for that scene. Get that bag. We stand a king. Uh, the opening credits don't appear until 28 minutes in the movie. Drive my car. Eat your heart out. <laughs> Apparently, Tom Cruise went on not one, but two rants against crew members about COVID protocols, one of which did leak, and apparently five crew members quit because of it. The second one we don't have because it's locked behind a Patreon. Our Patreon, actually. If you donate $10,000 to the Bomb Squad Patreon, <laughs> you can get it. <laughs> After Ethan Hunt enters that building in the desert in the original movie and he fires four shots at an enemy, listen to the shots carefully. Bum, 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 bum. Syncs up with the theme. Edgar Wright shit. Love to see it. Nice. Um, what I love about the scene between Kittredge and Ethan in this movie is that Kittredge uses the same phrase, which is, I understand you're very upset. In this movie, he replies, I'm not upset. While in the first movie, he replies with, you've never seen me very upset. Full circle. I didn't pick this up in the last movie, but apparently Vanessa Kirby's character is the daughter of that weapons dealer from the first movie. So there's that for you. So that's all I got for trivia. Let's go on to final thoughts. Austin, you're first. Uh, this could have been the best submarine movie ever made if they had just stuck to their fucking guns and stayed in the submarine. This could have beat Das Boot. Hunt for Red October. This could have been the best sub movie of all time, but they had to go up above the fucking water. Big mistake. Two out of ten. Fuck. I agree. Tim? Oh, I had a good time with this. I'm glad to be caught up with the franchise, and I'll be there for part two. 
Hell yeah. It is a great action movie. It's one of the best action movies of the year. But unfortunately, by the high standards the Mission Impossible franchise has set lately, it misses the mark slightly. But it's still an ultimately very enjoyable movie that I would love to watch again and again. But you know who else I would love to watch again and again? Who? You! The person watching slash listening to this episode of Bomb Squad Movie Night. And if you're on any of the audio platforms, go ahead and leave a review. It boosts us in the algorithm or it doesn't. Just do it anyway, fucker. If you are watching this on Spotify video, we hope you appreciated this uncensored edition of Bomb Squad Movie Night. And if you're watching this uncensored, how about you mosey on down over to our Patreon where we'll be... I'm Okay, I'm going to stop saying we're launching rewards soon. Clearly, I'm wrong. We will be launching rewards at some point. And if you're watching this on YouTube, thank you oh so very much for watching. We really appreciate it. Go down to the comment section below and let me know what's your uh, favorite seven movie in the franchise. What do you think of Die Reckoning Part 1? Are you excited for Die Reckoning Part 2? What's your favorite Mission Impossible? And finally, would you drive a motorcycle off a cliff? Comment below and let me know. And while you're down there, hit the like button so we know how much you like us. Hit the subscribe button so we know how much you love us. And hit the bell icon so you know exactly when we upload new movies. Tune in next week when we talk about a new movie hosted by the great Austin Zwiebelman. What movie will we be talking about? Yes, we're talking about the new Christopher Nolan movie that everybody's going fucking crazy about. The story of the guy who helped make the atomic bomb, Oppenheimer. Be there or be square. We're going to explode an actual bomb for our opening bit in this episode. It's going to be great. (laughs) Tune in then. It's going to be a blast. Again, thank you for watching. See you next time. Bye. Farewell.